saw an interesting article uh, this week, one that made me laugh, um, caused me to think, actually. It was in the um, journal called MIT Technology Review, and it was entitled The Hipster Effect, subtitled Why Anti-Conformists All End Up Looking the Same. Super interesting research. It was a sociological study of why people who are trying to push back against the mainstream and live a life of like authenticity and individuality, why they all end up dressing the same. And, and hipsters were used as the study group, you know, with their skinny jeans and plaid shirts and beard and beanie. It's so typical. I found the article um, entertaining but unconvincing that it's true. But uh, one guy I read about, he was furious about the article. He couldn't believe it. Showed it to his family and friends. They were furious. They couldn't believe it. You see, the article came with a picture attached. I'll show you the picture that was attached to the article. This is it. Um, the hipster effect, why all anti-conformists end up dressing or looking the same. He at one, took one look at this picture and lost his mind because it was a picture of him. And they had never asked his permission to use a picture. He was so mad, he sat down and wrote an email to the journal. It says, you used a heavily edited Getty image of me for your recent bit of clickbait about why hipsters all look the same. It's a poorly written and insulting article, and somewhat ironically, about five years too late to be as desperately relevant as it's attempting to be. By using a tired cultural trope to try and spruce up an otherwise disturbing story, your basic journalistic ethics were lacking, both in the manner in which you reported this uncredited nonsense and the slanderous, unnecessary use of my picture without permission, and it demands a response, and I am, of course, pursuing legal action. The editor of the journal was horrified to re receive this email and immediately sent his staff to go figure out what had gone wrong. You know what had gone wrong? Wasn't him. <laughs> The man who threatened legal action because a journal used a picture of him if for an article that said that all hipsters look the same only found out after the fact that the picture wasn't him. <laughs> um, I think whoops is the word that goes along with that story. But the, the whole point of the story <clears throat> itself, aside from this guy getting angry and proving the whole point of the article, was that it, it seems to be true that with groups that form, like cluster groups, like hipsters and whatever, there always seem to end up being certain identity markers where you can look at somebody and you can say, oh, he belongs to that group. If you're a hipster, the skinny jeans, the plaid shirt, the beard and the toque, that's the dead giveaway that you're a hipster, and everybody can tell because you bear the identity markers. That's how they know you belong. So here's a question for you. What are the identity markers for belonging to the family of faith? What things would you look for in a person to say, 
oh, that person is very definitely a follower of Jesus. That's kind of what we're digging into today. We're in the second series of this series in Galatians where the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to these churches that he planted in southern Turkey who he had brought into faith in Jesus. But then after he left, there was a group of missionaries that came through and basically said to them, you've put your faith in Jesus, that's amazing. Now, if you really want to seriously belong to the community of faith, if you want to really belong to God's family, here are some religious rules that are absolutely mandatory. You absolutely have to follow these rules or else you can't belong to the family of faith. And Paul hears about it and he writes this letter back to these churches to say that is absolute nonsense. Don't believe it. Don't follow them. He says, there is only one way to belong to the family of faith. It is by grace alone. It is the gift of God. And we receive it by faith alone. There's nothing that we can or have to do in order to earn or deserve salvation from God we receive it by faith that we put in Christ alone we don't trust in ourselves and our ability to perform our religious duties to perfection we trust in what Christ has already done that a life with God this is Paul's whole point to his letter a life with God is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone and nothing else as he's trying to help The Galatian churches understand it. He uses the example of a biblical character named Abraham. This is in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 6, if you have a Bible. It says this. So also, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul has just been explaining, as we talked about last week, that um, they know that what God wants is faith and not religious observance, religious rule keeping or whatever else. They already know that because every significant experience they've ever had with God, they had because of their faith, not because they were being such good religious rule keepers. And then he says this, right? So also, by so also, he means in exactly the same way as Abraham. And what did Abraham do? Abraham believed God. He had faith. And what was the result of Abraham believing God? God credited it to him as righteousness. In other words, God said, Abraham, you're living rightly in relationship with me. That's all I've ever wanted is your faith. Now, it's interesting that Paul uses Abraham as the example. It wasn't just the random example of a character in the Bible who had faith and was declared righteous. Abraham is actually one of the most important figures in the entire Bible because Abraham is the one through whom God builds his people, the family of faith. In fact, it was actually the example of Abraham in the Old Testament of the Bible that the missionaries were pointing to to say, look, If you want to be a child of Abraham, if you want to be a part of the people of God, if you want to belong to the family of faith, you have to do what Abraham did and get circumcised. And Paul says, that's not true. So let me quickly tell you the story of Abraham and why he gets used as this example 
And then we'll talk about how Paul responds to this idea that in order to belong to the family of faith, you have to get circumcised. You have to follow this religious rule like Abraham did. And what he says in response, excuse me. And then finally, what we'll do is we'll talk about what faith looks like. So the story of Abraham starts way at the beginning of the Bible. In fact, I'll show you how far back. It starts in Genesis chapter 12. It's the 12th chapter of the whole Bible. And it says this. This is the first kind of real mention of Abraham. The Lord had said to Abraham, excuse me, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God says to Abraham, listen, here's what I want to do. I want to give you a gigantic family. I want to give, make you into actually uh, an entire nation of people. That I will live in relationship with and I'm going to bless you so that you can be of the blessing of God to the world. Now the problem with God's plan, as awesome as it sounds, is that Abraham is 75 years old when this story is told. And Abraham has zero children. Hard to have an enormous family um, if you don't have a child. So Abram, three chapters later, he talks to God about this. And he says, listen, how are you going to make me into a great nation if I don't have a child? And it says, God took Abram outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord. And he credited it to him as righteousness. God takes Abram outside. He says, I know you don't have a child now. And I know you're 80. But I want you to look up at the stars. That's how many kids you'll have one day. And Abram, who is 80, said to God, I believe you. And God said, that's all I ever wanted was your faith. Fast forward two more chapters and 20 more years in the life of Abraham. He's now 99 years old when God comes to talk to him again. And it says in Genesis 17, Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. God says, this is what God will do. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant. It will never end. Between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. Basically, he says, I'll be your God and the God of your descendants after you. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Now, this is what you do. Every male among you shall be circumcised. God says, listen, Abram, this is how it's going to work. I'm promising you again that you will have a child. And he did about a year later. And he says, But here's the deal. I promise to be your God with you and your descendants and your descendants' descendants for generations to come if you promise me 
that every male among you will be circumcised. God said, that's how you belong to Abram's family, which in the Bible is the people of God, the people that God will bless to be a blessing to the world. So this is the argument that the missionaries are making after Paul's gone. They come into Galatia and they say, listen, if you want to be part of Abram's family, if you want to be a part of the people of God, if you want to belong to the family of faith, you have to do what Abram did and get circumcised. Or else you can't belong to the community of faith. And Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, says if we want to talk what the Bible says about how to belong to the community of faith, let's talk about what the Bible says about how to belong to the community of faith. This is what he writes. Back to Galatians 3, verse 6. It says, So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then, Paul says, that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Paul says, listen, I agree with them. If you want to belong to the community of faith, you have to do what Abraham did. But that doesn't mean you have to get circumcised. It means you have to be people of faith because that's what Abraham did. He believed God and God said, that's all I've ever wanted from you. So it's not those who are circumcised who belong to the community of faith. It's not those who are obeying this religious rule who get to belong to the community of faith. It's those who have the same kind of faith as Abraham. Then he says this, verse 8 and 9. He says, because scripture foresaw that God would justify, that's the same word as righteous, make righteous the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. He says, he says God promised Abraham that all of the nations would be blessed. That word nations in the Greek language that Galatians is written in refers to all uncircumcised people. Paul says, let's just look at what the Bible says. God is going to rescue uncircumcised people. So do I have to become circumcised to be rescued by God? No, God rescues uncircumcised people. Circumcision is unnecessary. In fact, he kind of hints was Abraham circumcised or uncircumcised when God credited his faith to him as righteousness? He was uncircumcised. When Abraham believed, he was not circumcised. So here's Paul's point. If you want to be a part of the family of Abraham, if you want to be, belong to the community of faith, if you want to be a part of God's people, it's not going to happen because you obeyed some religious rule about circumcision. It's going to happen because you, like Abraham believed God and God said, that's all I've ever wanted from you. It's not about religious rule keeping. It's about faith. So why do we make it about religious rule keeping? I think there's probably a couple reasons. If you think about your life of faith, whether you grew up in the church or came to it later, 
we enter into this life of faith in a community of faith that teaches us what to believe and teaches us how to practice our spirituality in a way that allows us to feel connected to God and teaches us how to embrace a morality that seems right to us. And as we, as we wrap our arms around this faith and say, yes, this is the faith I want for myself, we sort of, we sort of embrace it to ourselves and it becomes a part of our identity. And when it becomes a part of our identity, now it matters whether or not it's right or wrong, right? Because if this is you, if this is a part of your identity, you don't want a faith that's wrong. And so we, we, so we take our beliefs and we take our spiritual practices and we take our morality and we begin to believe that this is the right, these are all the right beliefs and the right practices and the right morality. And in fact, in time, we begin to believe this is the only way to believe and the only way to practice my spirituality and the only way um, to live out a moral life in the world. And anyone who does it differently than us is wrong. We do it because we want to feel secure in our faith. We want to feel like we picked the right faith. And in order for there to be a right faith, all the other faiths have to be wrong faiths. And when we come into contact with somebody who believes differently than us or practices their faith differently than us or lives a different understanding of morality than we do, um, it actually threatens our security. It, It makes us unsure of our own faith. And so we actually respond by trying to force other people to believe like us and practice like us and behave like us as a way to reassure ourselves that we were right all along and that we're believing in the right faith. And so what we do is we take this beautiful good news that God wants to give us the life of Jesus by grace through faith in Christ and we turn it into this sort of religious system of beliefs and spiritual practices and morality, this sort of religious rule-keeping morality so that we can feel secure about our faith and prove to ourselves that we're right and everyone else is wrong. And Paul says it's a disastrous way to think about faith. In fact, he says anyone who turns their faith into a a religious system is living their life under a curse. Verse 10, he says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written in the religious law, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. You see, what we do is we take this beautiful relationship with God that is by grace through faith in Christ and we turn it into this religious system that is tailored towards how we want to believe and how we want to practice and how we want to behave the religious rules that we want to keep and we ignore all sorts of other stuff but we pick and choose these specific things because these are the things that are important to us and in Galatians 3:10 Paul says I'm afraid to tell you that it doesn't work that way He says, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do what? Some, a few, everything that's written in the book of the law. These missionaries that came through Galatia, there are 613 rules that the religious leaders found in the Jewish law. These, they were insisting on three, circumcision, keeping kosher, keeping Sabbath. 
You say, you do these three, that's good enough. And Paul says, no, 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 no. If you're going to insist that a life of faith has to be lived out as this form of religious rule keeping, you cannot pick and choose. It is all or nothing. You obey all the rules or you all the time with no exceptions and perfectly or your faith has failed. No wonder he calls it a curse. Right? He goes on to say in verse 11, clearly no one who relies on the law is made right before God or is living rightly before God because the Bible says the righteous person will live by faith. He says, if you're someone who's living rightly with God, it's not because you're relying on the law. It's not because you're doing religious rule keeping. It's because you're living by faith. Contrary, he says, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says in the Bible, the person who does these things will live by them. He says, you can choose if you want to be right with God, You'll live by faith. But if you want to live by the law, if you want to live by a religious system, if you want to live by religious rules, they have to dominate your entire life. And he says, it is contrary to faith. You cannot be a person of faith who's committed to religious rule keeping. Because when you're committed to a religious system of beliefs and rule keeping, You are no longer trusting in Christ. You're no longer putting your faith in the life and death and resurrection and what Jesus has done for you. You're now putting your faith in yourself and in what you can accomplish by being a good little religious rule keeper. So Paul says you have to choose. You cannot live by faith and live by a religious system of rule keeping. You can't do both. You have to do one or the other. And by the way, the Bible says, if you pick religious rule keeping, you're living under a curse because you have to do all of it all the time perfectly or else you're screwed. Then Paul comes with the good news. Verse 13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. He's talking about Jesus being hung on the cross. He says, Jesus redeemed us. By the way, that word redeemed means to set slaves free at a cost. Paul says, we were slaves to religious rule keeping and Jesus set us free at the cost of his life. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. He says, listen, Jesus came and died on the cross in part to set us free from all of this religious rule keeping, all of these systems of beliefs and rules and practices that we put on ourselves and put on each other and tell each other they should be ashamed of each other if we can't live up to the system. Jesus' death sets us free from all of that so that by faith, he can pour out the blessing of the life of the Holy Spirit on us just as we are if we will just believe him which is the only thing he's ever wanted in the first place and so if that's the only thing that God has ever wanted that the only identity marker of a person of faith someone who belongs to the community of faith is not skinny jeans and plaid shirt and beard and a toque 
but a life of faith, the question is, what does the Bible mean by a life of faith? And it means three things. The first is this. It means that you are trying to figure out the truth of what you believe. In living a life of faith in Jesus, truth matters. It's not a life where however you feel, what you think is true, or whatever your opinion is, or whatever your friends have told you, or whatever your gut tells you, that's not how we discern truth. If we're living a life of faith in Jesus Christ, we discern truth by examining the scriptures in community with each other, in dialogue with each other, by the power and illumination of the Holy Spirit. God teaches us when we, in community with each other, diligently pour over the scriptures so that we can try to understand what it is the Bible teaches about God and Jesus and us and life and the world and the kingdom and everything. A life of faith begins by sorting out the truth about what we believe. And by the way, that's not something you do once and then put it on the shelf. It is a lifelong journey of growing and learning and being stretched. It comes, it's a lifelong journey of questioning the things that you were told and going back to the scriptures and saying, is that really true? It's a lifelong journey of sometimes doubting, saying, I don't, I don't know that I believe this and going back to it all over again. It's a lifetime journey of discovering something that you had never thought of. It's a lifelong journey of being in dialogue with people who believe differently than you and hearing other perspectives and having your mind stretched to see things in the scriptures that you would have never seen before. But it starts, faith starts with sorting out what it is that you believe. And I know that there are some of you who are newer or maybe even you've never even committed yourself to a life of faith. I want to challenge you to sort out what you believe about Jesus. Now I'm excited to tell you there are a hundred people across our three locations every Wednesday night who are doing this in our Alpha program, which is kind of like a one-on-one conversation about what it is that people who follow Jesus believe. And if you've missed this one, would you do me a favor? Send an email to info at southridgechurch.ca and say, hey, I missed this alpha. Can you let me know when the next one is? And we absolutely will. Because if you're trying to sort out what you believe, that is a great place to start. But it's not just for new or newer people or people who don't yet believe. It's about continuing on all the way through our life to press into the deeper questions and ask God to teach us to reveal more of himself, to show us more of the truth about who Jesus really is. In community with people who've been doing this longer than us, in community with people who know more than us, in community with people who have experiences different than us, to try and expand our understanding of who this Jesus is and this life that he's inviting us into. It has to do with sorting out what you believe. But that's not all. Last year, we studied the book of James, and the book of James says that knowing what you believe is not enough. In fact, the devil has better theology than you, and it doesn't help the devil a bit. Your beliefs will not save you. You see, think about this this stool, this chair, 
right? I can believe whatever I want about this chair. I can believe that this chair has been perfectly engineered to hold my body weight. I can believe that the materials that have been selected are strong. I can believe that the construction, that it was put together in a way that um, will support my body weight. But if I never trust the chair enough to sit in it, I will never experience the gift of the chair doing for me what I could never do for myself, which is hold myself up when I take my feet off the ground. The only way to experience the benefit of the chair is to act, is not to believe in it or to believe about it, but it's to trust it enough to sit in it. And there's some of us who know what we believe about Jesus, but you have never trusted Jesus with your life. You have never said, Jesus, I am sorry for being somebody who hasn't loved you and I haven't loved myself and I haven't loved the people around me and I haven't loved the world. And I'm, I'm sorry for that and I'm tired of being that person. Would you forgive me for being that person? Would you heal me? And would you heal the people that I've hurt when I haven't been that kind of loving person? Would you heal us so that we can be that person? Would you change us by the power of your Holy Spirit into that person? You have never, you believe in Jesus, but you've never actually trusted Jesus with your life. I don't want to challenge you. Don't leave here today without making the decision to trust Jesus enough to follow him, to believe in him, to receive the forgiveness and the healing and the transformation. And if you have this total side note, if you have made that decision, but you've never been baptized, you've never said in front of the community, I'm a follower of Jesus now. Send an email to baptism at Southridge Church. That's lots of emails today. But send an email to baptism at southridgechurch.ca and say, can I talk to you about what it would look like for me to be baptized at Easter. So we want to celebrate that with as many people as we can this coming Easter weekend. But it's not just about putting your faith for the first time in Jesus. Because <clears throat> there are some of you who have been following Jesus, living with Jesus, but you actually don't trust Jesus with your life. You don't trust Jesus when he says, Living simply is better than living comfortably. You don't trust Jesus when he says living generously is better than living greedily. You don't trust Jesus when he says forgiveness and, re and relational reconciliation is essential to experiencing real life. You don't trust Jesus when he says the truth will set you free. There are all sorts of ways that we don't actually trust Jesus enough to do the things that he tells us to do. And if we're not going to, even if we believe, if we're not going to trust Jesus enough to follow him, that's still not a biblical faith. Then there's a third. There's a belief component, a trust component. Thirdly, there's a faithfulness component. When James says that um, your beliefs won't save you, he goes on to say you have to live a life that is lived in line with the royal law of Jesus, which is simply this, love everybody as much or more as you love yourself, period. James says, if, if, you, if that is not the trajectory of your life, this long obedience in the same direction of faithfulness to Jesus, this lifelong life of love that we are living um, 
in line with the life of Jesus. So people can look at our lives and know what Jesus is like. We're still not living a biblical faith. See, some of us want our faith cake and we want to eat it too. We want to say we believe in Jesus, so we're followers of Jesus. We have faith in Jesus and whatever. But we don't really want to live a life that is in alignment with the love of Jesus. And so we sort of want to, we want to have our our Christian faith, but we don't really want to live it with our lives. We don't want to live it over a lifetime of how we live out our sexuality. We don't want to live it over a lifetime of how we live out our finances, becoming ever more shaped by the love of Jesus. But that's what it means. And by the way, faithfulness isn't a way of sneaking rules in the back door. It's about consistent, persistent character that expresses itself in a life of love so that people could look at us and say, my God, that's what Jesus would look like. That's the faith that Jesus invites us into, a faith of believing what the scriptures say is true, a faith of trusting it enough that we actually step out in faith and live it and a life of faithfulness where our goal is to live in alignment with the person of Jesus. Those are the identity markers of someone who belongs to the community of faith. It's not a whole religious system of beliefs and practices and rules that you gotta follow. It is a life that is believes in the scriptures trusts Jesus and lives in faithfulness to the life of God. So let me ask you this. And with this we'll close. Which one of those is God putting his thumb on in your life right now and telling you that you need to deal with? Maybe you're a person who doesn't yet know what you believe about Jesus or about something else in your life. There are questions, outstanding questions about the Bible or about a topic or whatever. You just haven't yet sorted out what you believe. Would you be intentional enough to find somebody that you can enter into a dialogue with? Somebody who is where you wish you were and would you say, would you walk with me in helping me sort out what I believe to be true about what the scriptures say? Or maybe for you, it's a trust thing. You, you're pretty good with what you believe, but you know that you aren't actually living your beliefs because you don't trust that living the Jesus life is better than the alternative. Find somebody who has been in the kinds of situations that you find yourself in right now. Find somebody who has been where you are, but who has learned to trust Jesus in the midst of those circumstances and ask them, would you walk with me and help me learn how to trust Jesus enough to choose the Jesus way whenever I'm faced with this decision? Maybe for you it's faithfulness. You know you want a life with Jesus and you think you you generally trust that what Jesus says is true, but you just aren't, haven't been all of that interested in living a life that aligns with the life of love modeled by Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Find somebody who, when you look at them, you say, my God, this is what Jesus would look like. And ask them, Would you walk with me and help me figure out how to live my life in greater faithfulness to Jesus? 
Because friends, those, that's it. Those are the identity markers. That is the only thing you need to belong to the community of faith. It's not all the right beliefs and all the right practices and all the right religious rules. It's simply a life of faith. That when we, like Abraham, believe God, put our faith in him, our beliefs, our trust, our faithfulness, he looks at us and he says, thank you. That's all I've ever wanted from you. And that's who belongs in this family of faith. Let's pray. Jesus, we uh, know how to make this life with you about all sorts of stuff that you never wanted. All sorts of purity tests on our beliefs. All sorts of boundaries and rules about how we practice our spirituality. All sorts of religious rules about what's okay and what's not okay. And We're tired of living under the burden of that curse. Of having to do everything perfectly all the time in order to feel like we're impressing you enough to feel like we belong in your community. Set us free. Jesus, you already did set us free by the cross. So would you just teach us to be people who, like Abraham, believe you and hear you say in our spirit, that's it. That's all I've ever wanted from you. And to experience the blessing of your life and power and presence of your spirit every moment of every day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.